Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. Russell, who is one of our big legends in South Africa. I don't even have a CV from him because I don't need one. The man is amazing. The man is a genius at 14 minutes before or 16 minutes before anybody else being at goal. He knows how to style and show people how to fly way in advance. He has his own complete way of thinking with flying. And I'm going to try and dig into this exquisite mind, if I may. I just found out a few minutes ago he's actually younger than me by close to five years when I thought this wise man had a good few years. But thinking man he is. A few minutes ago, sorry, Russell, I'll introduce you properly in a moment. Um, A few minutes ago, we were chatting about the exquisite book, and if I don't mention it now, I might forget to mention it, by Susan Cain, C-A-I-N. She does a TED Talk. She does a book called Quiet. It's about introvert versus extrovert. It's essential reading for anybody. But check her TED Talk out first. Um, That's like an introduction of 19 minutes onto her book. Fantastic. Russell is one of those introverts. That doesn't make him a lesser or worse person. In fact, by that book, you will find out that introverts are way, way more perceptive and cleverer the opposite scale, like myself, complete extroverts. So, Russell Achterberg, perfect to have you on the podcast. Welcome. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm very good in you, Steph. Uh, thanks for the, the, the intro. Yeah, I guess I am younger than you. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Introverts versus extroverts. That's it, it's always... It's always been something I've been a a bit aware of. I I think I was always a little bit quieter and more reserved in many, many parts of my life. But it's interesting, in some things you end up acting more as an extrovert. You know, I think certainly in my business dealings and, you know, the way I need to function externally as a professional, I, I function almost exclusively as an extrovert. So it's interesting that, you know, in my personal life and in the paragliding community, I think I very much am an introvert. But, um, you know, my, my business world is defined by being an extrovert and working with a lot of people um, and interacting with a lot of people. And, you know, I'm a, like, a, like a cheerleader and a, a pom-pom girl, somewhere between a bureaucrat and a cheerleader <laughs> a lot of the time in in my in my professional space because you have to work with a lot of people and if you're trying to follow a vision and and build a build something you need to to lead people and that requires interactions so you know but paragliding and the community in general there yeah definitely a bit more of an introvert so thanks. Um, I'm going to tell you something in a minute. But today we are talking about characters in Paraglide. And we're also going to look deeply into uh, Russell's mind if he will open up to some of his top tips and secrets to us. But Russell, I want to tell you the cheerleader in you 
is actually put on. So one thing that you will get within the first two or three minutes of Susan Cain's TED Talk is how she goes on summer camp and takes a bag of books with her because she doesn't want to know anything about anybody. And you would much rather listen to some music at home and read a book and dive into that than be in a crowd of people at a party. If I can ask you, am I correct? Yeah, I think I probably would. Um, I think if there's, there's good books and reading, um, I, I probably would. I think there are times when you, you know, you long to interact mm -hmm. with people. But in interacting with people, I think it would probably be a few closer friends than a larger group of people that I would favor. Well, you are echoing exactly what Susan Cain says in her book. So it's absolutely essential reading for you. You're going to find a lot of insights into yourself. It's, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, one of very few books that I've read twice. I find reading a book a uh, second time kind of like, why am I reading this for the second time or watching a film for the second time? But sometimes you go back. And Susan Cain's book is exactly one of those things. The cheerleader in you, I, I, I started saying, and I want to say, is an act. It's a put on. You do that as if you are going to a clown show, as if you are arriving and saying, right, now I have to be professional. I have to be in my job. I have to be out there and talking to people. So this is the new Russell that people see in work. But the true you is somebody who very few people get to see. Because I'm sorry to say that it's because it's got a stigma uh, attached to it, but it's an act that you're putting on. It's not natural for you to be who that, who that person is in the professional sphere, if you know what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, I, think that is, I think it is true. Um, you, know, you, you have to learn necessary tools that you need to be effective. And, you know, sometimes there's, you've got to use all sorts of tools to get the right outcome. Yeah, for you, it's absolutely not natural to stand up in front of people. In fact, I think the second biggest fear after the fear of death or a severe accident is the fear of public speaking, believe it or not, in society. So some of us have it that someone waved a magic wand or, or took a, a, a genetic um, mix-up and threw the cocktail my way and I was in, uh, extroverted, excuse me, 90% extrovert, and I live with a, a complete introvert. Tracy, my partner, is a doctor, and she doesn't have it natural to stand up in front of people and speak it. She's learned it over years. So have you, Russell. Look at that book. Anyway, we're talking about characters in Paragliding. I'm going to ask you questions because I'm hogging it here, and I don't want to be. Um, what kind of characters, what fits the profile, in your opinion, Russell, of a paraglider pilot? <laughs> yeah, I think paragliding pilots come from all sorts. Um, you know, one of the things that I <clears throat> appreciated early on when I started paragliding was the diversity of people that you get in paragliding. Um, you know, you, you have a wide range of cultural. There's a lot of English and Afrikaans and other nationalities. So you see the cultural side of people. You see um, the... Uh, I suppose the right word for it is the affluence, but the you know people with different means who to to paraglide, from people that you know scratch to get by right through to people who are you know um, can come to <laughs> So you get, you get a wide variety of people, and I, I think that diversity of people is spectacular, um, and I appreciated it more and more, particularly when you travel. You know, you learn the community you grew up in. So, you know, I, I learned to fly out in Rustenburg, and then I was very involved with Cloudbusters, then got exposed to the first para bunch, 
then increasingly to more of the South African pilots from different parts of the country. Um, but it's amazing as you then learn and meet pilots from the rest of the world, the community just gets bigger, bigger and bigger and the diversity of the people uh, just, just grows. It's awesome. Um, and because you share a common love for something, you, you can very happily spend lots of time with them, which is, which is great. Oh, you're so right there. And really, it's it's food for my soul that you're saying. I mean, you've just, as you're speaking, I'm just thinking like, you, you know, the diversity of jobs in paragliding, okay, people who are doctors, engineers, boiler makers, they can be bakers, they can work, you know, I know a guy who's the head of a butchery. I mean, how many butchery owners are there in paragliding? Plenty. And so the list goes on. So it's absolutely independent of what anybody does in their life, what they earn or anything. Sorry, I want to say one more thing. And also, not only that they're professions, but also it's because we're a brotherhood of people who do something on the edge of risk versus reward. And we're a brotherhood who look after ourselves, uh, each other. And I think that's our bond. And I think, you know, people also do it to get different things out of paragliding. You know, um, for some people, the community on itself is the attraction. Um, you know, many have a love for the experience of flying, um, but they would do it for the, you know, the a narrow experience of getting off the ground. Um, just getting up in the sky and landing down at the bottom 20 minutes later is what they're trying to achieve. You get the guys who see it as a pathway to, to nature. I know that's, <clears throat> that's what got me the first time. Um, I learned to fly out in Rustenburg and, you know, flying on the Michalisberg from the site called Wigwam when you take off and fly over the back there, it's just, just amazing mountains. Um, and then flying out in, into the wilderness and across the Michalisberg was, was just incredible. And that was for a long time, you know, the, the draw card for me um, until, you know, I realized that, you know, um, there's a lot of other places to fly. And one of the best ways to learn how to fly in other places was through competitions. And so the appeal for, of competitions then came because you can just fly so many more places and, you know, become reasonably proficient at flying in those other places, which was awesome. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, just to add to what you're saying there about some people are happy with a fuffy, a little sled ride, as they call it in America. Um, some people need a thermic flight every time they fly. You got me thinking of Leon in Pretoria, uh, Leon Fulyun, who held the record for the most uh, 100 kilometer plus flights I think in the world it's an unofficial record of course it's just a one bragging right and he had done 120 uh, 100 kilometer plus flights by the time he came to help us for a season in, in Cape Town as a tandem pilot but then you've got other people like Andre Rainsford who I had on the phone two days ago he has to burn it as hard as he can every time he goes for flights. He gets up and he, and he hits the bar. If he really does every flight, that would really surprise me and say something about him. But other people, boring, soaring in the late afternoon. I have a friend in East London. He's just too happy to just make a foofy off a dune for like 10 seconds, 20 seconds. It's like, why bother, you know? And that's his jaw and he's happy. Go on. Yeah, so it, it's really amazing, you know, and I've, I've experienced some of those changes in, in myself over time. You know, um, I remember where I would have done anything to get off, of, get off the ground at, at some points. 
Um, and, you know, and over time I've, I've become a little bit more selective and, you know, unless, unless the, the benefit outweighs the logistics that I currently have in my life, it, it's, you know, it's quite tough to get out there. Um, but, you know, anytime the weather looks great and there's a chance for a reasonable flight, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to get out there. How far exactly do you live from the takeoff, uh, Russ? Not that, not that far. I live out in Hadebeersport. So we're about, about 30 kilometers from the cableway um, to, to drive there. So it's not particularly far, but um, the practicalities of running, running a business and having, having a young household with two little, little girls means that, you know, the, the opportunities to, to make use of that are, are far fewer than they used to be. Um, but that'll change. But for now, you know, uh, entertaining my two little girls takes up a lot of, lot of my free time. That's the way I prefer to spend my time at the moment. Um, you know, do you have a limited time with them? And, and that's my choice for now. It's really funny. Andre's in exactly the same boat with his girls, uh, well, with his boy and his girl, sorry, but his two kids and his wife. And uh, that's the family man style thing. So that's what you do. You are involved with uh, telephony and uh, um, internet stuff and online. And you have 450 people in your company. Russell, that's no mean feat for uh, a guy who tries to go paragliding and be a family man. How do you do all of that? Yeah, I mean, we, we were very fortunate over time to, to build up a, a team of telecoms professionals. So we have um, a range of um, telecommunications specialists who try and help the, the mobile and fixed telecoms providers like Vodacom, Telcom, MTN, et cetera, deliver their services better to their customers. So we do a range of IT and technical work for them. And we were very fortunate to do the right thing at the right time. Um, we were fortunate to get a few breaks. And by building the right teams and building momentum over a, a good 14 or 15 years, um, we managed to, to develop some scale and some, some powerful teams. And, yeah, we, we fight hard to, to do a good job for them and, and um, create a, a empowering environment for the people that work work with us a few minutes ago we were chatting about how um, difficult it is at this time of course evidently and how graced uh, you are uh, you mentioned um, about your position and what you guys do uh, do you want to comment on that yeah I mean the epidemic is really testing so many so many people and so many companies um, you know, I think we're quite fortunate in that for the most part, our, our primary customers, which are telcos, are essential services. And, the you know, their demand is booming. Their challenges are, are booming. Not so much from lots of new customers signing up, but lots of there's lots of bandwidth that's needed. Everybody's moving to, you know, using different collaboration suites and video conference calls and otherwise. So... There's lots of demand for telecommunications and, and the services around those. And so we're fortunate in that, you know, the software development and the skills that, that we have has been relatively stable. Um, so we, we're happy for that. Um, but, you know, it's important that we make sure we do the right moves to try and create 
that sustainability because it's going to be a very tough six months, um, at least six, six to 12 months for the country. Um, so, you know, we've got to try and do the right thing so that everybody can keep supporting the people around them to get through this. Yeah, I mean, uh, you speak of bandwidth. Maybe you can just off the top of your head think of a bit of a comparison or a percentage or a, a kind of some kind of figures. Uh, they mean nothing to me, really. But I was uh, shocked. I had to take, obviously, some extra mobile data. You are here on the side of the mountain chatting to me in Portable. You're in Johannesburg, just outside. Just to clear up, you've got Harta Biesburg Dam near you, which is the ideal, uh, easy Joburg flying site where all Joburg and Pretoria or Johannesburg and Pretoria pilots for our international listeners are going flying and where lots of South Africa's crack hot pilots have actually gotten their 10 and 14 meter a second thermals straight off the cliff there. Very hot, dry place. Now, what kind of percentage of data increase has there been, Russ, in the last while? Because right now, as I understand it, everybody's in lockdown, everybody's online, so much free stuff on Netflix, on the Band Film Festival, on on this kind of podcast. I mean, I've taken 43 gigabytes down in the last month and I haven't downloaded a single thing. It's just been kind of normal use. Speak, please. Yeah, I think um, for the larger operators, it's a bit of a shift of bandwidth that, that is happening. Um, so you would imagine that most people going to their offices every day would use a lot of bandwidth to their, over their corporate fiber networks. You know, so you would, you would go to work and, and use connectivity there. What's now happening is a lot of that has shifted to home use. So people who are fortunate to have fiber or other people who have to then connect over mobile data are using much more. And, you know, I think we've, we've seen that so far, um, you know, just across our teams, we've had, you know, users using about a gigabit a day of bandwidth in the course of working. So, you know, I think just, you know, uh, just our company ends up being about another 300,000 rands worth of data um, so far. Um, it's, it's ridiculous. So I think the service providers are... Um, they've got a lot of demand on the mobile data side, but I think the corporate larger connectivity has certainly fallen through the ground because nobody's in the offices. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, you speak of the change. My other question is, uh, do you see a big uh, percentage increase on the blue-collar worker who normally would have been occupied by lying under a car or, um, uh, you know, planting in a nursery or, or fixing something in a factory? And now all of a sudden he's not doing that and he's at home in lockdown. Um, is there a massive increase in how much people are online? Is it significant? I don't know. I can only offer my own personal perspective. I don't have stats or, or details on that. Um, I think uh, data is, remains quite expensive for a lot of people. Um, I think the free rating of a lot of websites has made a difference. So I think the free rating, a lot of the university and school and other websites is certainly driving a lot of demand to both sites. Um, but data remains expensive. So I think the basic economics of, you know, do you get data or do you eat remains a pretty real challenge to a lot of that sector of the economy. Can I ask you, you don't have to answer this, but if you care to comment, uh, how do you feel about yesterday night's announcement in South Africa of a 500 billion rand 
kind of loan from the IMF or World Bank or whoever it is that's putting us more into debt? I, I definitely think that an injection is necessary. So I, I think that the stimulus is right. Um, I am unfortunately a little bit jaded by our recent history around state capture and the looting and inappropriate use of money. And this is an enormous amount of money. So um, I am really pleased that the move has been made because you know, money needs to go to people to buy food to eat. Uh, I really hope that we, there's, the measures are strong enough to prevent the looting of the money because otherwise, you know, there's, there's some social media posts that are going around at the moment which are showing, you know, what 1,200 rand's worth of shopping at ShopRite buys and what a 1,200 rand government uh, hamper looks like. And, you know, they, they're not even comparable. Um, so I'm, yeah. I'm really hoping this doesn't just end up in an in a enormous amount of abuse. Well, unfortunately, I think that... Uh, there are dollar signs in people's eyes, um, politicians, if I may. Um, I think it's enough said. Let's move on. Let's talk about something really nice, like paragliding. Hey, so Russell, uh, very quickly, uh, tell us when you started flying. Best glider, worst glider. Tell us a funny story, or tell us about your 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 history. Anything? Yeah, I I, I started flying out in Rustenburg with Dirk Dion Siliers. Um, he doesn't fly anymore, but I think he was he's quite a character to all that, that knew him. We flew out in Rustenburg and mostly cross-country. I probably just flew cross-country for the first two or three years of learning to fly. I came from a sailing background, so I, I took Ooh. to the sensations and the mechanisms of flying quite quickly. You know, I was... I was quick to get up there and start flying some distances and trying to figure out how I catch the thermals and, and go further. So my first couple of gliders and my, all my experiences were biased toward getting, getting cross-country flights under my belt. I hadn't realized how, how cool competitions were as a way to build up skill and experience and have structured recovery so people come and fetch you. So competitions are actually <laughs> a really cool way to, to, to fly. Um, but I learned on the cross-country side. You know, started on airwave gliders. Um, I had a gradient Aspen glider for a long time. That was sort of one of the foundation, real foundational gliders in, in, in coming through. Um, then incrementally moved on to Nova and on a, on a 2-3 for a, a, a long season, competition gliders. Um, but eventually got into that and... Yeah, I, I really was fortunate to to do the R10s where the real change in competition paragliding came through. And, you know, since then we've been flying amazing machines. So really, really have enjoyed the gliders that that have been coming out since about the R10 time. You know, I think things are just getting better and better. Yeah, thanks a lot to a couple of nice designers, including Bruce Goldsmith, who, funny enough, also comes from a sailing background. He was telling me about how he wanted to start to paraglide at 14 years old. 
he wrote to their association. They said, sorry, buddy, uh, you have to be 16. And he was really bleak. And at 19, as a student, he started hang gliding, designing hang gliders straight off the bat. But came from a stadium background before. So there's a nice one. Quickly, uh, the Aspen and Nova gliders that you just mentioned, which model, which, which generation? Yeah, so it was the first first Aspen. It was so there was the Aspen one. You know, I think what was very different for me is I managed to get a really big one. So one of the one of the challenges I've always had is, you know, I weigh about a hundred kilograms. So I'm normally looking for gliders that run from 125 to 135 kilograms. Early on in my paragliding career, I was always over the top of the gliders. They were just, you know, I, I just couldn't go anywhere. Then I ended up with a, the, an Aspen glider that went to 140. And so as a result, all of a sudden, I was floating everywhere, which was fantastic. Really loved that glider, flew it a lot. The Nova was, uh, the, was the Tycoon, a real step up for them in that space. So it was the 2-3. And I think it was one of the first gliders where I got to pick the colors. So it looked good, <laughs> which is cool. You know, the gliders are the best always have the cool, coolest colors. I think colors are like one of the most, uh, most important part of any glider. Oh. If it's not the right colors, then you're just not, not going to go anywhere. Oh, I have to completely disagree with you. I'm a guy who only buys secondhand stuff, unfortunately. Now, I'd love a new glider one day. But to choose your colors, like, it's true. It makes you feel more like, oh, I've chosen my... Belgian flag colors, you know, red, black, yellow, that's me, or or whatever it is, blue and purple on the Enzo 3 and whatever it might be. And now I've ended up with a Zeno that's purple and uh, shocking yellow, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, great, uh, great. Um, super cool. You are two meters 10. Are you challenged by uh, uh, harness um, fittings? And obviously you're a, a you're an uncommon weight, if I can call it that. There's not a lot of guys cruising around that are 100 kilograms. So obviously getting a glider must have been a real challenge for you all through the time. And your harnesses, please. When the open class gliders, it was fine. When the, the rules changed and the CCC came about, for a long time, there was biggest gliders you could get were 125 kilograms. And that was a horrible couple of years because I mean, meant I was on a perpetual diet. I needed to get my body weight down to around 94 kilograms, which is uncomfortably low for me, um, and maintain it in order to be able to not break the weight, the, the top of the weight range. You know, so with a small bottle of water and the lightest harnesses I could find, I could just squeeze in. Um, harnesses are fine. Normal harness lengths work for me. I'm, you know, I think 196 um, in, tall so I, I can get in most okay. harnesses um, okay. most extra large harnesses um, but the problem is the bigger harnesses are heavier so you know you end up with everything just weighing more which then just pushes you closer to the top of the glider but most of the the you know gin and ozone decent job particularly ozone with the enzo 3 of going to 130 just you know again i had a glider of the right size you know so you get a decent decent performance in strong conditions and you can still fly in light conditions which otherwise you end up landing because you're just just simply too heavy i mean let's face it russ since you're tycoon what you're currently flying there's a whole big difference isn't it you're on an enzo 3 if i'm not mistaken do you love that glider what do you see or what would you like to see next 
Yeah, NZ3 is awesome. I must admit, it's been a been a really good gliding gliding platform for me. I had been on uh, a string of gins for a while before that, and I I really enjoyed the the different gin gliders. But there's a real difference in the handling between the the gin gliders and the ozone gliders. And I think for me, it was sort of the right timing to get a bit more of a a confident. The the gin the ozone gliders are stiffer, so their internal pressure is higher than the gin gliders, and I think they're more damped. So I think their their wingspan is more cohesive. So they're it's a it's a stiffer platform, and it's slightly quieter. So I don't think you can feel the air as well as you can on the gin gliders. Um, I think the performance of the two platforms is is really similar, um, but it's it's suited me. And I've you know I've been on those N three now for a N three now for a long time. It came out in before the world in Feltre, and you know we used the gliders then. I'm still flying the same the same glider, so it's a good three and a bit years now. I think. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with an Enzo 3. There's nothing wrong with any of the top gliders, I have to say. The boomerangs, uh, the flow. Uh, I had Davide Licini on the line the other day. He's the guy who has the sponsorship with Jack and Jones, and he's always um, on the scene, on the PWC scene. He's often an observer and so. And, uh, you know, uh, he's just changed over to a Spectra from flow, swears by it, swears by it. I tried the Diva uh, from, sorry? They're very nice gliders. Yeah, I had the privilege of trying the Diva and the MacPara uh, Magus, the the D category, so to say, uh, two liners, fantastic, so well behaved, like such a pleasure to fly. And at the end of the day, Russ, it's about fun factor, isn't it? Yeah, I I, I think it is, and you know, I th- I'm I think I'm a little bit of a nervous pilot. Um, I. You know, I'm, I always have a base level of anxiety when I'm flying. So, being on a platform that you're confident in helps. Um, you know, when you've when you've flown the gliders, you know how they react. Um, you know, as your confidence grows, although I, my my nerves don't disappear, the you know the ability at the over time, the confidence in dealing with different situations on the platforms grow as you experience them, and you become much more comfortable flying, which is which is great. So I I'm, I really love the the Enzo three and you know, flown it in all sorts of conditions, and it's it's always treated me well. Yeah, now I want you to take a step down, please, Russ, and um, I, I'd like you to give some kind of opinions or tips or. I mean, you haven't been flying forever, you know, you know, one of those folks who started in 1985 or so, you know, you, you got into the sport when it was kind of evolved and it was already, you know, you speak of just having owned actually, let's say four or five gliders. That's very little for a man who is able to pull away from the pack and go far away. So in the, in the next few minutes, I'd like to ask you first, what up and coming pilots, XC pilots, even just basic top rules that you have on the takeoff or for your headspace have you got any top tips you'd like to share with all pilots of all levels out there and secondly i'm going to ask you then um answer the first question first please you know my my approach to uh competition flying and flying in general as i mentioned is a bit 
bit of a cautious one and a bit of a bit of a nervous one. So you know, getting off the mountain certainly has is a very anxious part of paragliding for me. You know, getting off the mountain and getting as far away from the mountain is 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 really important to me. You know, a lot of people are very comfortable flying close to terrain. Um, that's that's not really my style. I cherish getting off and getting getting up and away. I think as a result of that um, awareness, the start procedures are also particularly stressful for me. Um, I think that increasingly the the risk in competition start gaggles is um, very, very high. So, you know, I've, as a result of that, I've had to pick a strategy that works for me because I accepted some time ago that I'm not prepared to take the risk of competing for prime position in start sequences. So, you know, that normally means that until about 10 minutes before the start, I'm, you know, I'll sit happily below the majority of of the pilots busy scrapping it out in tight formations um, and, you know, hopefully try and get into a reasonable enough position um, with sort of five minutes to go. But it does mean that very often I'm disadvantaged at the start. So as a fundamental characteristic of, of my flying, I'm almost always behind at the start. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 you know, um, it's, a, it's a, a result of a conscious choice to limit limit risk, um, which I frequently uh, lambaste myself for. But it, it it's it's unfortunately is very real and it's extremely consistent. Um, so I do choose to stay out of dangerous high density gaggles at the start because I I really think the risk is just too high for me. I, I I'm not prepared to do it. Um, and it means that very often I'm playing catch up. So I've sort of come to terms with, you know, the first, first five to 10 Ks of any race is about me getting back in touch with the lead gaggle. Um, because normally I'm starting a little bit lower, um, a little bit lower than them or a little bit just behind them. Um, which means you've got a little bit of catching up to do, which is, you know, I, as I said, I swear under my breath at myself. Every, the start of every race, but I have developed skills and, and techniques which allow me to catch up. You know, you can catch up normally because you have the benefit of being able to watch what's happening to people in front of you. And as long as you don't let them get too far away, and if you might make the, the right choices by aggressively chasing lift to catch up, so very deliberately fighting to catch up, you can get back in touch um, within the the first 30 or 40% of, of a task. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that not a lot of people know. Some, some, of, the, some of the South African team pilots know about it because they, they whine at me all the time because of that choice. But it, it is a distinct choice that that's, um, has, has come into my flying. I think what that has resulted in is to catch up, you have to be aware of what is happening to the, all the pilots around you. And I think the primary skill that paragliding tests is multidimensional decision-making. You know, what separates a 
what separates good pilots from the rest is the ability to hold all of the choices in their minds and trade off you know, speed, direction, height, wind, topology, clouds, and you know, at all times look at all the available choices and trade them off against one another and make a decision that you're prepared to stick to for a, a period of time. Um, individuals who, they might be really good at flying the platform, they might be really good at flying the glider, but unless their ability to understand all the factors is equally good, um, you can take them on. And that's the gap that we take. You know, we're, we're good at decision-making, which is why we can compete with the top pilots in the world. We can't compete with them because we practice as much as they do. You know, they fly every day and they're exceptionally honed. They are, they are so good at it. But if our decision-making and decision trade-offs um, might be a little bit better than theirs, uh, in, in some situations, we can, we can take that opportunity and grab it. And that's what you've got to look out for. Very, very interesting, Russell. You're not blowing smoke out of any ass of your own. Let me tell you, that's. I haven't often heard people in the paragliding realm speaking of multiple discipline decision-making. And you've made me think that, uh, sorry, it, it might sound like, oh, duh, evident. But I've never thought, oh, I'm taking in that much information. I watched a little uh, YouTube video. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, thousands of people have watched it now where Kriegel writes on his gloves. And at first I thought like, what a, a chop thing to do. You should be able to think those things. But uh, Andrew Smith uh, two days ago told me about the conscious and the unconscious, how well you fly with a hangover or with a toothache uh, because you are not bordering on the conscious. And one of his questions that he attacked me with was, attack me. He said, Steph, do you fly intuitively or do you fly consciously? And I had to think about it a lot. And, I, and my answer was, it's a mixture of both. But he then went on to explain how important it is for us to be distracted of our conscious thinking and to tap into our unconscious and to kind of have a soft focus. When you're riding a motorcycle at high speed, you have a soft focus, of strangely enough. Um, you're not looking at a specific point on the road because otherwise it's over for you very quickly. Um, yeah, speak further, please. Tell us about this. Yeah, I think, and I, I would agree with Andrew. Um, you know, I think your unconscious mind is the key to getting great performance. Um, but what a lot of people don't understand about that is developing your unconscious mind is a very active difficult thing to do it doesn't it isn't just there it isn't it isn't a sort of magic or a something that you know flows through the ether into you um your your un unconscious ability is a result of practice you know when you learn, when you need to learn to drive a car you don't magically know how to drive a car you've got to drive the car by making mental decisions you know a little bit left a little bit right a little bit left a little bit right and trying to go down the middle of the road over time, that becomes a learned behavior, and then your unconscious mind can start to replay the learned behavior. Now, the trick in, in paragliding with so many factors that you have to trade off is you need to be sure that you've consciously developed, you've done the practice. So are you consciously looking at where the, the clouds are forming? Are you consciously looking at where the other pilots are? 
Are you constantly looking at how the wind is changing? Um, because if you practice it enough, then you'll get the benefit when your unconscious does it automatically for you. But the process of developing all the conscious building blocks takes discipline. It takes an, an awareness. You need to bring awareness to all the different components of flying and build up the different building blocks until you have a, enough building blocks to build your house. Um, and I think um, experience and exposure to different environments, um, flying in different topologies, terrains, flying in different paragliding fields, um, you know, all the events that you need to go to to build up proficiency, what that is doing is if you do that in a very conscious way, so you look at um, every um, race you have, what went well, what didn't go well, how well did you start, how well did you follow the topology, how aware were you of where the field was, why did you not see that group making a move down a particular side, you know, if you bring um, conscious thought to it, either during the flight or after the flight, you can start to increase the quality of those building blocks, the quality of your unconscious building blocks that then allow you to do things in a more automated way. Um, I, I frequently uh, feel that particularly relative to Andrew and some of the other guys, I'm, I'm in more of a dwell when I am racing than they are. <clears throat> they can always tell me about how high they were or you know, what altitude they got to or you know, a whole bunch of um, technical insights into the flight. And I don't know, I just, I just sort of went where I th it, it felt good. <laughs> um, so I think, uh, you know, many of those unconscious building blocks of our work, you know, have been developed and I have them available. Um, but, you know, practice is needed to continue to refine them and figure out which of your building blocks are not serving you well. And if you want to improve your performance, you need to go after fixing those building blocks. Um, you either need to be happy with the, you know, happy with your building block or you need to be working on fixing it. Um, some of my building blocks I'm aware of are not optimal for, for competition flying, but I've chosen them for personal reasons. So, you know, I'll give an example. I'm, you know, racing, rich racing is not my strength. Um, I'm, I think the risk is particularly high and I'm, extremely anxious when I do so. You know, the result of that is I perform relatively poorly when that's a significant part of, of an event. So, you know, I think over time I have an awareness of where my building blocks are, are, are good and not so good. Um, some are easy to fix and some I'm, I'm happy with for the meantime, even though they don't result in, uh, you know, they, they, they aren't the right building block to win some competitions. Absolutely diamonds. You are giving me gems of beautiful information, really. And I'm not kissing your ass when I'm saying it, Russ. We've slept together once. I'm never doing it again. No, you're... Uh, you're <laughs> I'm glad you like that joke. Listen, um, but actually, for five rand, maybe... All right. Um, really, really, really beautiful to listen to your, uh, uh, to your insights. It's very analytical. It's very deep. I never think like that. Maybe I'm a monkey. Maybe I'm just um, 
you know, I'm ADHD version X, as you know. Um, nine kids' birthday parties in a day. Uh, good luck to that. It was like I have the, the energy of a madman. But um, I've never calculated like that before. And now to start looking into this kind of insight and especially what you say, really nice, really deep. Congratulations and thank you. You know, one of the, the things that I started doing way later than I should have that I realized makes an enormous difference is, you know, when you go to a, and you have a special flight or you, you know, have a race in a particular day, it, it's really worthwhile doing a post, a, like a formal flight review afterwards. Take a piece of paper and on the piece of paper, you know, analyze the different parts of it. You know, were you stressed on the takeoff? Were you anxious about the strength of the wind on the takeoff? Um, what were the things that were notable? Did you get to the start on time? If you didn't, why didn't you? You know, give yourself a score out of 10 for before the race. Then, you know, the race you can break up into some chunks. And I think the, you know, the first 5Ks is definitely one chunk. Um, you then you know, have a middle of the race where you need to live in the peloton. You need to live with a group for, you know, 60% of the race or 70% of the race. Um, you then start to differentiate in the last portion of the race. And then you've got the final sprint. And I think if you, you know, if you take each of those and you give us, you know, give yourself a view of what happened, what did, what, what did you do? What choices did you make? What choices did other people make? Why did it work or not work? And just, you know, writing down every flight and, and being a little bit critical with yourself and giving us, you know, did I, get, did I get nine out of 10 for that section or was I actually a little bit behind and I got lucky at the end? Um, and, you know, it, it sort of brings a bit of honesty. Otherwise, you know, we tell ourselves a story in our minds as to, you know, we might have got lucky and snuck over the line and, and felt like a rock star doesn't mean we were a rock star. We just got lucky. And I think by being honest about all the different sectors of a flight, um, it brings awareness to where you're consistently not scoring well or not performing as you would want to. And it, it makes it much easier to target. And it's not really difficult to do. Just a piece of paper, five sections, give yourself a score for each. And, you know, if you're honest with yourself, you'll know – you know, you'll know if you're BSing yourself in what you write on the piece of paper. These are proper nice tips. And what I like a lot, Ross, is that the tips are not just uh, designed to competition pilots, for example. It's across the board, if I'm not mistaken, that you mean it. You can be a cross-country pilot. You can be a kind of hobby pilot. You can even go on a kind of a little normal flight by yourself, if I'm not mistaken. Can I ask you something? Do you meditate before you take off or do you meditate in general in your life? Um, I, I used to for a, for a long part of, uh, for a, a good couple of years, I, I did, particularly when I was learning to fly. Um, and I think during the years that I was learning to fly, you know, I was very, very actively building up my unconscious awareness managing my mind space was a very a very distinct part of what I focused on for a for a long time. 
Um, I do that less now. I think um, my world is quite noisy now. So there's, there's less of that that goes on. So I still have the techniques. I, I still use them from time to time. Um, I still use them during competition flying. Um, but a lot of the time, you know, paragliding for me is about um, something I'm going to do to have fun and I'm going to express myself and just enjoy it. So, you know, although the techniques work, um, sometimes I'm, I'm just going for more pleasure and less structure, if that makes sense. It definitely makes uh, sense. And um, I would encourage you to try meditating again, even give a bash to uh, meditating before takeoff. Um, just give it a chance. Um, that angst that you have, that um, you're definitely being pulled back. Look, I'm speaking from a hypnotherapist, hypnotist, uh, a kind of mind guy perspective, okay? Looking from the other side, take this like you want to. But Russ, I see that you've got the strong pull from my family, my business, my responsibility, my guy that has to at all costs not crash in life. Okay, crash, figurative and literal. Now, you go and paraglide and you go into a trance. Believe it or not, I know what trance is. Well, you do know that I know what trance is. Um, and you go, yes, you go into a trance when you are paragliding, okay? Yeah. Maybe no, you definitely a deeper Definitely. You agree with me. But maybe you go, if we could measure trance, which you actually can, you go into a deeper trance than most. You go completely into Russell's world. Um, you know, you, you are deep in your own head, probably thinking of nothing, which means that you are properly focusing on what you mentioned to me, the multidiscipline decision-making, looking at the clouds. You go into a, a zone where you are definitely your head is only around what you're doing now. You leave home behind, but there's a string pulling you back to the safe side, uh, the risk aversion that you were speaking of. Hmm. What do you say to all of that? Um, the sensation of flying is, is definitely a form of, of trance or a form of unconscious activity and... You know, one of the one of the things that's very apparent to me is how strong that effect is, and and you see it where you haven't flown for a while, and you go and have a ten minute flight. You know, the reset switch on the world has been pushed, and the world feels like a better place. You know, it it does it at a deeper level. You know, than a lot of things do. Yeah, it's it's interesting how the mind mind's a complicated thing. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example on a uh, reflection on what you've just said. Uh, you know, if I could paraglide here in lockdown, a 10-minute flight would suffice. It would be like if you've been in prison for years and years and you're just dreaming of a prostitute, uh, it would take me the difference between, you know, I ask, either ask her if she wants a quickie or if she wants the full four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's really, really nice to chat with you. I wanted to tell you a little earlier, um, also a, a reflection on, on that conscious building blocks that you spoke of. Us building our uh, conscious um, building blocks is a very, very important thing. One of my strong ethoses in life is do what you do, do well. 
So if you're going to do something, if you're going to do a show or you're going to do a podcast, for me, it's not important if you're shaved or not, or if you're wearing a stupid looking floppy hat, or if you're outdoors, or if your cell phone is balanced on two branches, which it is right now, rougher than a bear scrotum is fine for me. It is important to focus on what we're doing. We were talking about driving earlier. When I was younger, my dad paid us, uh, my brothers and I, we are each a year apart, and I'm the middle pip, um, got uh, BMW um, driving courses, um, just two of them. They didn't cost a lot, and we take BMWs A on the skid pan and on the road. And that, learning about commentating driving, where you're consciously in your mind going, okay, there's an obstacle here. After a while, it gets so ingrained, and it becomes so natural that if I drive fast with people, they are shitting themselves. But my heart rate won't go over 80, 80 beats per minute. Sorry, my story carries on for a moment. But um, a great documentary that I love is called Faster. It's uh, about the history of MotoGP. And the very first person to be um, interviewed is Valentino Rossi. He's driving a race, a car, a Porsche or whatever on the racetrack. But he's just casually driving and, you know, and he's talking. And he says, and the first time you try the 500cc uh, MotoGP, it's like a fuck. This is his opening of the film. And they measured, the doctor on the GP race circuit measured in an actual race, not training, an actual race, the heartbeat of Valentino Rossi and his arch enemy, um, Biaggi, uh, Max Biaggi. And they measured and then took the reading for the whole race. Valentino's highest uh, rate, I'll tell in a moment, but Max Biaggi's was like 180, 190. Diage, uh, um, Valentino's was nothing more than like 115. So where some people will be sweating big drops while we're flying in a thermal or in a gaggle, one guy asked me, please give some feedback about gaggles. Another guy might be cool as a cucumber and blowing the vuvuzela or taking photos. Huh? Yeah, I, th- I, think it, I think it is like that. In many of the things, it's a matter of what you perceive as risk, where you believe that there, there is risk. Um, and what your risk appetite looks like. You know, one of the things I'm, well, I'm not the only one, that many of the competition pilots are anxious about is the the changes in the large international competitions. What has happened as pilots have got better, the number of property competitive pilots has increased. So the density of the gaggles has become very high and for very long periods of time. So previously where you might have spent, you know, half an hour in a high density gaggle in the course of a three hour race, you're now spending four hours in a high density gaggle over the period of a race. I think that gaggle flying is is one of the real risks to paragliding racing that we have at the moment. I think that I think that we've got some got some challenges. I know people are working hard at different race formats to try and deal with that. But I think one of the, the risks that um, certainly for me remain, you know, remain a real barrier. Andre and I, when we were in, in France um, at one of the PWCs, both were flying with heart rate monitors to mm-hmm. you know what what happened over over time to our to our heart rates um, the result of that is the heart rate taking off was particularly high um, so you know the 
for both of you? Extremely high. So in both of us, by far the highest heart rate um, was taking off. And yeah. I, can't, I can't remember the value, but it was ex extremely high. Um, and then the other thing was landing. So the second highest value is, is during landing. Um, you know, again, that makes sense to me that I'm, I'm also anxious landing. So I think for, for both of us, but those were the high values. Um, Andre's base heart rate, he, he's very skilled at maintaining and keeping a cool head. Um, so during flying and other things, his heart rate is, is particularly low and in a good place. Um, and mine was sort of in, in between, uh, neither high nor low. But the majority of anxiety by an absolute margin is Oh, that's uh, super interesting. And may I ask why you guys did the experiment? I mean, what is that all about? Uh, were you just curious or did you want to further your skills? Was it a serious experiment? So Andre, as a result of some of the diving that he's been doing, started focusing a lot on the characteristics of his heart rate and as it relates to his swimming performance. So, you know, in all his swimming training, he had a really good understanding of um, effort and what it does to his heart. So he was permanently tracking um, on, you know, on his monitors what, what was going on to understand the, the behavior. And, you know, I had at the time one of those Fitbit general health tracker devices. So it, it was... Easily know, done. It was, it was easily done. Um, admittedly, it, it was in France and the, the takeoffs were high, strong and dangerous. But it was, you know, it, it was crazy how high the heart rates did get at that point. Yeah, that's a super, super interesting insight too. I mean, shit, I'm hearing some cool stuff this afternoon. I really like it. It's been good chatting. So. Oh, it's been absolutely great. I, I have to say I've done probably 22 podcasts now. I've recorded 22. I've got about 12 of them on the, on the little app there. And um, yeah, uh, some super, super nice ones. But this one has been interesting. So yeah, great. And nothing, nothing boring in our chat, which has been just, just awesome. Cool, man. Thanks, Steph, and enjoy your enjoy your lockdown there. I'm I'm a little jealous that you're in a in a in a nice nice place outdoors. I got a bit of cabin fever going this side, um, but yeah, it will pass at some point. You'll probably only pass about fifteen checkpoints to get here, but you're absolutely welcome. You can come. You can scale them in the middle of the night. No one said that publicly. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> dude, I'm completely against the lockdown. It's such a load of crap. I mean, it's just like one day we're gonna look back and go like. Why didn't we just have the president on TV just announcing to the country, this is what social distancing is, people. Everyone play the game. People are either going to play it uh, fairly or unfairly. Um, I mentioned it in another podcast, but basically Ian DeFries got stopped at a, at a roadblock. And from his view, where they were checking one person in the car with a mask and his permit, there are three soccer matches with huge crowds going on within view. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is, it is ridiculous. I mean, some of the conventions that are going around, you know, you'll see one guy walking through the felt in the middle of nowhere wearing a mask. And, and he'll get it. And they're like, okay, I, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> wearing a mask, right? I mean, my mate Cedric and I were having a huge argument about why can't we kite surf? Why can't we mountain bike? What the hell? Who is it to anybody if I go flying? I mean, I think I think the the trick is it's not different people have access to different things, you know. So at the point where you can go kite surfing, does that mean somebody else can go to a shabin? I think it becomes a matter of just trying to limit get everybody to stay home and not do anything because I think some of the proximate things that uh, some people have access to would really spread Corona. So I think it's a difficult line. You know, one of the ones ones I'm aware of is I live in an estate and, you know, we're fortunate to be on the dam and there's very strong rules where you're not allowed to go fishing. So I can't walk down to the end of my garden and throw a fishing line in the water because that that would be against social distancing no shit i have a problem with that i'm sorry uh, that is absolute bullshit and why shouldn't you be allowed on your boat by yourself you know what i mean if yeah. there's a party of six boats and it's a pool party going down with all sorts of fun stuff that's a different story but uh, you know the people who live together alone on their boats i mean the problem here is a stress level which is building up with people, which is going to be compounding. I'm very into the mind. I'm very into how people will react in a certain way. We are going to see the biggest revolution coming out of this yeah. that we've probably ever seen in South Africa's, I won't, don't even want to say post-apartheid history. I just want to say maybe since the Boer War, we're going to have the biggest unrest in South Africa. Yeah, I just really hope they, they unlock it and, and basic society can find a way to sustain itself in time. The, the poverty is going to be a real issue, so I hope that things loosen up quite quickly just so that we can get most people in a bit, slightly better position to try and start supporting themselves. Well, as many, many pilots have um, uh, shouted to me, hopefully people come out of this more respectful, more humane, and just a little bit better people thinking back and just going like okay did i have to cut that guy off in the traffic did i have to push in the queue here did i have to be a dick here you know cool thank you steph and enjoy the rest of your lockdown and see you soon let's wrap it right here cheers russ what a pleasure